0: scene here goes Latavius Murray in for the score because their pensions their health insurance their families so we are funding for other people's communities to have the promise of the American dream while we are denying it in our community gonna get it in the flat to Murray he makes a mad miss and a big game for Murray who's still on his feet inside the 15. Latavius Murray and everybody making people miss this afternoon. So, we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Welcome to Afro Futures. This is Yusuf here today, and we just got the verdict yesterday from the Officer Chauvin trial for the killing, public lynching, of George Floyd. Nine minutes and 29 seconds. Nine minutes and 29 seconds is how long Officer Chauvin put his knee on the back of George Floyd, snuffing the life out of him, extracting his existence from reality, taking a loved one, a brother, an uncle, a father, and it didn't just, though it certainly affected his family, it affected all of us to the point where the largest global movement in history culminated into what we saw these nine minutes and 29 seconds, and that resulted in the guilty verdict on all counts for Officer Chauvin. Today's episode, I really do want to take us take some time to think about what this means for us. I wanna give folks the ability to tap out if you feel necessary. This is a traumatic experience and particularly for black and brown people, for indigenous people, this is a continual re-traumatization of hundreds of years of history that have policed black and brown and indigenous bodies. And it's important for people, too, if you do feel that this is too much for you to have this conversation, to step away. And I hope folks are able to get the type of mental health services that they need. But if you are able to stay with us today, and if you are able to uh, withstand another conversation about this issue, I really do want you to take some time with us today to just assess and talk about and really unpack what this moment means um, and put it into the broader context for both liberation of black people and really a, a, a hopeful change in the way that we conduct law enforcement in this country. But we can't forget that this was nine minutes and 29 seconds of public lynching that we all saw. And I use the word public lynching because it's a part of a long history. When we contemplate this public lynching, what does it make you feel? What is the emotion that comes out of it? And is there any vindication that an officer was held accountable? And so I want to unpack this from a few ways. I think in the first context, thinking about why is it that it took the world to to focus on this issue for there to be any amount of accountability? And it's important to first think about what happened immediately after the death of George Floyd, right? What happened immediately after is the Minneapolis Police Department. Characterize this as a kind of like accident, right? And in their press release, after the killing of George Floyd, the way that they characterized what happened was very different than what we all saw. And but not for a 17-year-old girl and her nine-year-old cousin, we would not have had the video. And so it's important to understand, as is often the case, what happens when people record police officers for engaging in gross misconduct. If we didn't have the body camera footage, would we have been able to verify the video recording that the young woman had? If people didn't organize and mobilize and insist on justice for Floyd, and to be clear, I don't know that there can ever be justice for George Floyd. Again, he's, he's never gonna be here. He's never gonna hold his daughter. He's never gonna walk her down the aisle. He's never gonna celebrate the birth of her child. So I don't know that there can be justice for George, but perhaps there can be some accountability for what happened to him. But but not for those actions, this would be a very different circumstance. And all too often black people are told you didn't see what you saw. And it's kind of fitting that it's basically 30 years, give or take a few months from another moment that captured a police encounter, the Rodney King assault. 30 years later, right? And there's so many names between Rodney King and what happened to mobilize people to galvanize action to this moment. There's so many data points. You know, if we go to 2014, not that long ago, and we think about the killing of Eric Garner that was caught on video, there's a long history of these public lynchings. And so in the first context, I think it's important to understand that, but not for the insistence on people who saw something wrong, who said this is not okay, who made it known we would not be in this moment. And so this moment goes to the people who did that. And I just want to honor them. I want to uplift them and I want to thank them for their service. And because of their pressure, we were able to have a prosecutor because this is in the second context, what's really important. Oh, too often when Officers engage in misconduct, we see circumstances whereby district attorneys' offices or attorney generals, which are the top law enforcement officers of a state, do not try officers, right? We saw this in the case of Breonna Taylor, where they didn't even attempt to bring a grand jury that would help to facilitate for justice if there can ever be or would ever be justice for Breonna Taylor. But it took... Keith Ellison, the state attorney general for Minnesota, to actually assemble a team to bring in police officers and experts and to enforce to the fullest extent of the law the murder of George Floyd. And in too many communities around the country, we don't have a Keith Ellison. We don't have a district attorney or a state attorney general that's willing to put a police officer on trial. And to hold them accountable and so it's important to uplift the work of the team that they did to make sure that george family would be able to get some accountability for his killing and in the last context i think it's really important for us to think about what lessons we learned and there are a few lessons and i just want to unpack some of them now first lesson if you were able to watch the trial. And for many of us, it wasn't possible to do because of work, because of just the continued traumatization. But I was watching most of it either during or later on in the evening. And it was a lesson in use of force policy. And for the general public, it's this sense of not understanding adequately because of lack of accessibility to understand that even though you see with your own eyes, what doesn't look reasonable, that the law has often enabled an officer to engage in conduct that can be violative of someone's life, that can take away someone's life if they deem it to be reasonable, and if a reasonable officer, given the totality of circumstances, would otherwise behave similarly. And that's why even though we see instances where officers put a person in a chokehold, where an officer will shoot a person, where an officer will put their knee on someone's neck, nine minutes and 29 seconds, that often the case has been that they've been able to say that a reasonable officer was able to assess that this is uh, justifiable force and therefore can use that deadly force. And what this was was a lesson in use of force policies so that at the local level, we all can understand that every department, every 18, every one of the 18,000 police departments across the country have these policies in their departments that dictate the types of force and how they can use force when they have to de-escalate, reduce force, and what judgment they can take when using force, right? The discretion that they're given to use force, including lethal, deadly force. And this was a lesson for everyone to understand that there's a lot of leeway that officers have in being able to assess that they can snuff someone's life out and have no accountability for it. And in some instances, actually be given awards and accommodations and recognized for valor and bravery for doing so. And so it's really important to understand that that is a fallacy. It's a fallacy because when it comes to black and brown and indigenous people, that is disproportionately going to result in their deaths. But when it comes to Kyle Rittenhouse or Dylan Roof, uh, individuals who knowingly—we knew that they engaged in violence. We saw with our own eyes um, the AK-47s and semi-automatic rifles and machinery of war that they had in their arms. We knew that they killed individuals in the context of churchgoers in South Carolina, or in the context of Dylan Roof. Literally, the police drove by him with his. Rifle and arm, and gave him a glass of water. And for Dylan Roof, brought him the Burger King. Somehow they were not perceived to be threats, but George Floyd was. This was also a lesson, not just in use of force policy and how problematic those policies are. This, I hope, shatters the entire theory of broken windows policing. This idea that a broken window, some minor issue, will somehow lead to the continual disintegration of society. And so therefore, we must enforce every single infraction to prevent utter chaos. The absurdity of this notion and this idea ought to be rejected entirely. Because George Floyd had a knee on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds for an allegation of a, tw- of a counterfeit $20 bill. I want to repeat that again. For the allegation of a $20 counterfeit bill, his life was snuffed out of him. And for several minutes after the breath escaped his body and as his soul began to transition to the next life, Officer Chauvin stayed on him despite the fact that he had no pulse and he knew that he didn't have a pulse despite the fact that he wasn't struggling, despite the fact that he wasn't moving. And it is that broken windows policing system that has afforded this type of outcome that resulted in the death of Dante Wright for having what? Air freshener in his rear view mirror. But it's not just broken windows policing because broken windows policing is the newest manifestation of a long system of policing bodies that has resulted in that natural next outcome. It is also important to understand where policing as an institution emerges out of. As an institution, policing emerges out of slave patrolling. As an institution, policing continued to develop to enforce black codes during the 1850s and beyond when the Fugitive Slave Act was enacted to retrieve enslaved Black people and bring them back or to just take random Black people and enslave them. You know, I live in Syracuse, New York, community that celebrates a moment in our history with a monument called the Jerry Rescue in downtown Syracuse in Clinton Square. Beautiful place, lovely water fountain, amazing statue. Syracuse, a place that was on the Underground Railroad was one of the places where people would pass through on their way to trying to gain freedom, either in the north. We're not that far from Harriet Tubman's uh, hometown, where she was laid to rest in Auburn. Um, And so we're on that line to the Underground Railroad. And Jerry was an enslaved black man who, as history has told us in Syracuse, was, a, was being attempted to be retrieved back and brought back to enslavement. And in the context of Jerry, community members in Syracuse like, we're not having it. So when they brought him to the jail for holding, the federal marshals, the US marshals brought him for holding to retrieve him back and take him back to enslavement, community members burnt the jail down. Now, for the record, I have to say, I am not condoning violence. I am not telling people to burn a jail down. I don't want that to be contorted or confused, but I want to put into context with what people did in Syracuse. They burnt the jail down because Jerry wasn't going back to enslavement and they got Jerry out of there. That is modern policing. That is where it comes from. It evolves after the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, which effectively ended reconstruction in the United States. Reconstruction is this era for rebuilding and reorganizing the country after the Civil War, after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, after the passage of the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment, an amendment that we celebrate for having abolished slavery, but forget that it abolished slavery except when you're convicted of a crime. And so, after the end of Reconstruction with the Hayes Tilden Compromise of 1876, we see a reemergence of a white supremacist society and culture and the creation of a series of bodies of laws to police black bodies, to bring them back into that status. And so policing was manifested to facilitate for that. If you think about the heroes of the civil rights movement, if you think about individuals like John Lewis, and you think about where he was, and who met him when we celebrate the moment of the MM Pettus Bridge and the crossing of the MM Pettus Bridge. And you think about who met them on the other side of that bridge to enforce Jim Crow, to prevent them from being able to peacefully march and protest and advance the First Amendment protections to ask redress for a grievance against your government. Who met him on the other side with billy clubs and dogs and militarized equipment but the police. And that hasn't changed since the 1960s because even in the moment that we saw of the global movement around organizing for the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, what did we see? We saw militarized police officers show up and beat people, mace people, rubber bullet people, even after George Floyd, even after the deaths that happened after George Floyd, even until the moments we saw throughout last summer and last fall. It is that warrior cop mentality mixed with this broken windows policing that is at heart of this problem. With the language, the mentality, the equipment, the technologies of war deployed in our communities across the country. So this moment is just bigger than the guilty verdict for Officer Chauvin. This is about looking into how do we change the relationship between law enforcement and the communities that they serve? Why is it that we accept the minimal of standards when it comes to protecting black life? Why do we have to continuously engage in understanding? In fact, even after the verdict, or as the verdict was coming out, we found out a 15-year-old black girl in Ohio was killed by law enforcement. Despite all that we saw, despite the entire trial, a 15-year-old black girl's life was taken as the verdict was being announced. This is why I stand very firmly with this idea of defunding the police. And I know people want to reduce it to a hashtag or want to say that it's going to cause us elections. There is no empirical data for that. There is absolutely no evidence that supports that. That's a talking point that people want to use to make up for the, the, the unlikely outcomes that we saw from last election. What we mean when we talk about defunding the police is reducing the size, the scope, and the power of law enforcement because they shouldn't be enforcing traffic infractions. They shouldn't be enforcing $20 counterfeit bills. They shouldn't be enforcing every single encounter that we have with them in the ways that they do. That the power that they're given is too large and that we have to abolish it as we know it because it's rooted in a white supremacist culture as an institution, and it's gonna continue to manifest those outcomes. And we have to radically change our understanding of public safety. What I think we gained from this George Floyd movement, this trial of Officer Chauvin, it forced us to really, I hope, reconsider and engage in a discourse around new possibilities. And you're seeing this all across the country. You're seeing across the country removing police from schools. You're seeing all across the country reinvesting back into communities that have been divested for generations, reconsidering the size, scope, and power of law enforcement. Do we really need police to deal with someone that ran a red light? Do we really have to have police show up and put a person in a chokehold for the allegation of a counterfeit Lucy selling a loose cigarette? Do we really need police to do that? And why is it that when it comes to black bodies, to brown bodies, to indigenous bodies, to bodies of Asian American communities? Why is it that somehow we may not likely live those encounters, but our white counterparts can walk away home and in fact be taken to Burger King for executing members of a church, despite police knowing that they did so? This is a moment for us to think critically about the future of our country. This is a moment for us to think about and consider what is the future that we want to have? And I hope that this trial does make a change. It is in some respects a deep sigh of relief, but it's also deeply, deeply, deeply concerning that we have to celebrate someone being held accountable for the killing of an individual and how paradoxical that might seem. It is important to celebrate this win, though, because for the people who organize, you gotta know that your organizing wasn't for naught, that your efforts weren't for naught, that your insistence of imagining a better opportunity wasn't for naught, that we deserve better and that we can demand better and that they serve us so they have to give us better. Keep on doing it. Do not stop. Do not relent. This is not the moment to go backwards. This is the moment to go forward. This is the moment to keep pushing, to keep pushing, to keep pushing and keep on pushing. And so for the people who are listening here today, I hope that you've had a chance to tell those that you love that you love them, to embrace your elders, to hold the future generations that are coming up and to let them know that you're pushing for them. But I don't want us to stop. I don't want us to get into complacency. I think it will be a disservice and an injustice to George's memory to stop. This has only just begun. The work to dismantle these systems has only just begun. We can no longer accept another moment where 9 minutes and 29 seconds galvanizes us to action. I want to thank you for listening t- to me today. My name is Yusuf Abdukadir and this is Afro Futures. Afro Futures is produced by WAER Public Radio with producers Joe Lee and Kevin Kloss.